I'm Unetta Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, okay, so we have a, a pretty full docket today. Um, we're going to be covering election integrity, um, which first, which is obviously uh, very relevant after um, you know Arizona and Nevada elections taking until now to fully count. Um, we're also going to move over to GOP lessons from Florida, one of the few bright spots on the map. Um, I'm going to cover uh, the the single woman vote, uh, a topic I teased last week. And then Emily is going to talk about the GOP leadership race and internal GOP uh, fight and politics. So uh, with that, Ben, can you kick us, kick us off here? Sure. So kind of following up on what we discussed in our election special last week, there are myriad factors that explain what on its face would seem somewhat inexplicable. Uh, a few data points, I think, crystallize this. Obviously, you have a national popular vote, which shows Republicans up by several million in the 2022 races collectively. You had a red wave, obviously, in Florida, and frankly, a red wave apparently in New York, which, as we noted last episode, might have been to some extent dampened by the exodus of Empire State residents to Florida. But nevertheless, two pretty different states, Florida and New York, each indicating the kind of results that we would have assumed, given the fact this was a midterm election with a historically unpopular president in the Oval Office and his party predominating in Congress, and all the myriad other factors that usually point to a shellacking for that president's party in a midterm race. As some people have noted, Kyle Becker had this tweet a, a couple of days before we recorded showing essentially that every single time in these midterms for Republicans, 1966, 78, 94, 2010, to the extent there were even negative popular votes for Republicans, they picked up gobs of seats in Congress. Yet in 2022, at the time, the tweet was out, Republicans were plus 4 million votes and plus 9 seats. By contrast, in 2010, plus 6 million votes, plus 63 seats. 94, plus 5 million votes, plus 54 seats. So the question is, you know, how do we get there? How do you explain these results? And we went over last episode, myriad factors. Of course, everything ranging from uh, sorting of voters into places that are more like-minded, redistricting, where the establishment put its money and its energy, the quote-unquote candidate quality issue, and a whole slew of other factors as well. One point that we didn't probably emphasize as much as I think it now merits emphasizing, given what seems to be inexplicable, you know, even on the basis of ticket splitting and the like, is the fact that you have all of these states where the results trickle in far after the fact. And we're left with these questions about how is it that voting machines or tabulators can break down on election day, this singular day that they're supposed to work, and the day, obviously, where Republicans disproportionately come out to vote? How is it that in these very close races where the results, we don't find them out for days and days, that it almost always invariably seems to go to the Democrat side? And obviously, building on what we saw in 2020, this raises questions about the integrity of the system itself. And I think what is very clear, and I emphasize this in a Federalist article, is that questions about these 2020 and 2022 elections, where we see similarly inex 
despicable results. In 2020, by the way, where you had Donald Trump losing, but Republicans, frankly, faring quite well, relatively, given those uh, popular vote counts and how the election shook out, is when you have a system where the time during which you can vote is extended, the manner in which you can vote is loosened such that even if there wasn't fraud, it would be the potential, obviously, for the fraud is there. And then, of course, the ability to detect it is made that much harder. And then to be able to detect it and actually verify it would only come after the fact, post-election day, and you might not be able to deal with the results anyway and remedy the issues at that point. And then the fact that we don't get results on election night reported in, except in places like Florida that have put in more stringent standards on a relative basis, all speaks to the fact that the process itself is undermining confidence in the system, but also, of course, that that process has been tailor-made for a Democrat get-out-the-vote machine, which was proven to work wonders in 2020 and would appear again in 2022 to have worked out as well again. So effectively, you rig the system, whether legally or not, and then you have a machine in place, an infrastructure in place to exploit it to maximum extent. And the question becomes then, where are the Republicans? So I think it's sort of twofold here how we should think about this. One is it's clear that the voting process may be determinative in swinging races one way or the other. And this is now a fact of life after 2020 and 2022. And there's an attempt to normalize what I would argue are the abnormal in terms of our system. And this is, by the way, an inadvertent admission of the further decaying of our entire system, Republican system, that we could even be in a place where we have the rules that we see today. The other factor is now we have to compete under a set of rules that should not exist in a whole slew of states. And it's been made that much harder when you've seen swings at state levels in not only gubernatorial races, pivotal ones, but also in state legislatures, which before had been on the Republican side. So we have a twofold awful system, yet an awful system where we have to compete and we are at a huge structural deficit because Democrats have been preparing to exploit this system for years. They have a huge get out the vote machine that is powerful, well-organized, runs like a well-oiled machine. And so until and unless we grapple with this question, who the candidates are, how much money is put into these races, all these myriad other factors, I believe become secondary in a country that is as closely split as our country is. So with that, I kind of turn it over to the group. Do you see it the same way that the voting process itself has become maybe the determinative factor? And then what do you do, given the conditions that I think we all agree, we now have a rotten system in place in far too many places, but we have to win under it. And we're at a strategic disadvantage to have any chance to overturn these rules and go back to a credible system that is real integrity. So I was away from NatCon Squad last week, so I guess I'll be the first to chime in here. I, I mean, first of all, this midterm was obviously devastating. I mean, as far as the sheer magnitude of the, of the disappointments, that's not to say that there were not bright spots, obviously. Florida and New York State, both aptly flagged by BAM. Even Iowa, actually. Kim Reynolds cruised to a massive victory in Iowa. Ohio had a pretty good night overall. I'm not entirely. So there were some good data points out there, but just, I mean, just a really, really, really devastating night. I just recorded 40 minutes on my own Newsweek podcast, kind of trying to break down where it all went wrong. I, I am happy we're talking about election integrity, election fraud, vote by mail, early balloting, absentee balloting, all that stuff, because that is properly speaking, I think one of one of the things is not the only thing, but is definitely one of the things I think we should be most kind of zeroed in on. I guess one of my big takeaways is 
I'm not sure who had the great idea to effectively tell Republicans to unilaterally abandon, at least in many states and many jurisdictions, kind of the early vote, absentee ballot vote by mail game. So in Florida, where I live, for instance, Republicans outright won the early vote. Um, even in California, you know, a state like California, which has ballot harvesting, it appears that in some congressional districts, the Republicans were able to salvage their their elections, their victories, in part by playing the ballot harvesting game. And we're a little short on time in the segment, so maybe we'll come back to this in final thoughts. But I guess my big takeaway here, like my big conclusion as far as all this stuff is concerned, is that we have to at least in the short term utilize these dubious means in order to, in the mid to long term, ultimately eradicate them. So we have to try or our best to play the early vote absentee ballot ballot harvesting operation. It's not a fair fight. Ballot harvesting, by very definition of what it is, is going to be most effective in high density urban areas, college dorm rooms, things that militate in favor of the left. But we should be trying to kind of do the same for, for nursing facilities, senior living facilities, um, try to get the churches to the extent that we can ballot harvest the, the mega churches. I mean, like to the extent that that even makes sense in a lot of these swing states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, you name it there. But in the long term, we have to get rid of all this crap. What the left has done is they have taken the 2020 COVID era once in a lifetime shifting of the Overton window as to what an election means. And they have taken that and grasped with it and, and run with it. And one of the biggest, biggest conservative Republican talking points and ultimately try to put those talking points into action has to be to get us back to the pre-2020 status quo ante. The biggest surprise of last Tuesday to me was John Fetterman, not because I thought Dr. Oz was a good candidate, but because I uh, just thought that debate performance was disastrous um, for, for voters in Pennsylvania. But as I started crunching the numbers, I realized some uh, 750,000 plus, I believe, votes had been cast actually before the day of that election or of that debate. And some 73% of those votes had been cast by Democrats, which amounts to probably 500,000 votes for John Fetterman that had already been cast before he debated Dr. Oz. Um, and yeah, the Dr. Oz ended up losing by a couple hundred thousand votes. It was a fairly close race. So a good example there is Republicans can't agree to debates that happen after early voting has started. I mean, just like an obvious, obvious thing right off the bat. Um, that just can't happen. And I think it's a good example of where Republicans should be looking to adapt immediately right now, looking at next year's elections, any elections in the in the, the immediate cycle that's coming up, uh, just adapt. Um, because that's a really good example. Just one thing that I think swung a full Senate seat um, because the media had been simping for Fetterman, uh, pretty uh, Fetterman's health. They'd been sipping for Fetterman's health in the weeks leading up to the debate. So I'll toss to Inez. I think that's a really good point, Emily, um, about about the debate, and it's something uh, to to uh, Ben and Josh's points. It's something that can be fixed right away via the GOP. They can just refuse to set any of those debates after early voting has started. I like that because it's practical. Um, despite agreeing with a lot of what Ben and Josh said, I, I don't want the voting uh, system to become a crutch either. Um, like Josh said, you know, these were devastating midterms um, outside of a few bright spots. And I, I do think there is a danger um, in ignoring, I mean, Ben, you, you said, you said it yourself, the country is divided. Well, we have to think about why the country would be divided after, you know, the disastrous last two years that we've had. I think that does require sort of hard thinking on our part about, you know, what, you know, whether the right has a future, whether the Republican Party can have a future, whether, you know, what issues 
We need to connect with voters on. I don't want this debate to sort of short circuit that important as it is. Um, I just think I think it can become and I'm not saying that anybody here is doing that, but I do think I have heard like some, you know, sort of GOP types rely on this issue, I think, as a crutch. And I think that can be dangerous. But um, with that, I'm going to kick it over to Josh to talk about one of the few bright spots on the map, Florida. So Florida definitely was one of probably the brightest spot for Republicans, for conservatives last Tuesday evening. Um, I live here, but unfortunately, I was not here to celebrate that evening. I was actually in the swampier swamp, the District of Columbia, but it's great to be back here recording with y'all. So what happened in Florida, from my perspective, and I'm a little biased, obviously, because I'm, I live here and plugged into this scene, but it seems to me like it was quite remarkable. Um, I mean, let's bear in mind that this was Florida. This is the state that decided the 2000 presidential election by 537 votes and one very controversial U.S. Supreme Court opinion called Bush versus Gore. This is the state that really, along with Ohio, for the better part of the past century, has been one of, I think, the nation's two kind of quintessential purple states, one of the paradigmatic swing states. I mean, if you win Florida, if you win Ohio, you know, historically speaking, you were said that you were going to win the presidency. I think Donald Trump actually was the first president in 2020 to win both Florida and Ohio without winning the presidency, just because of those two, those two states are so symbolic as far as come their swing state status. Four years ago in 2018, uh, Ron DeSantis defeated Andrew Gillum by 0.4 percentage points, barely over 30,000 votes. Uh, not a very wide margin, to put it mildly, and especially when you consider the fact that Andrew Gillum is now you know, being prosecuted. I mean, he was found drugged out of his mind in that Miami Beach hotel room with what appeared to be a possible gay prostitute. So uh, DeSantis barely beat Gillum in 2018. Rick Scott actually beat Ben Nelson by an even narrower margin, roughly 11,000 or so votes in 2018. And now you fast forward four years later, and in 2022, Ron DeSantis wins Florida by 19.4 percentage points. Marco Rubio dispatches Val Demings by roughly 16 percentage points. DeSantis wins 62 of Florida's 67 counties, including Miami-Dade County, which is the most populated in the state, 70-plus percent Hispanic County. DeSantis wins it by double digits, wins by 11 points. Rubio wins it himself by, by uh, roughly 9 percent. Republicans win every statewide uh, race here, agriculture commissioner, secretary of state, attorney general, you name it. They take supermajorities in both houses of the state legislature. So, you know, enough triumphalism. Like the question is why? I mean, this has come the million dollar question is why? How do, what happened over the past few years to really make Florida such a red state? And it really is the last few years. I mean, that is, I, I cannot emphasize that point enough. So just since DeSantis took over as governor in 2018, there's been a shift in the voter registration rolls of 600,000 away from Democrats towards Republicans. Uh, when DeSantis took over, Republicans were down roughly 300,000 in the voter rolls. Now they're up 300,000. If you look at the 394,000 new active voters who have moved to Florida since the onset of COVID, Registered Republicans outnumber registered Democrats by roughly a two to one margin. So people are quite literally voting with their feet, actually, in addition to kind of the acti the activization or whatever, that's a, the act activation, I guess, this is the word I'm looking for, of the Hispanic community here. And this is another key point. It's actually not just the Cuban community. It's not just the Cubans in Miami-Dade County, even in Osceola County in central Florida, which is a majority Puerto Rican county, actually. Puerto Ricans, historically a Democratic voting bloc actually broke for DeSantis and Rubio this cycle as well. So I guess what is Florida doing that um, a lot of the rest of the country really should look to? Well, 
first of all, we count our ballots very quickly. So that's one thing I think to, to go back to the previous segments. Everyone knows the results of Florida very quickly. So there's no, everyone knows that there is competent, good governance here. There's no kind of meandering doubts, the likes of which we see in Maricopa County, Arizona, Clark County, Nevada, some of these Western states that can't seem to figure out how to count a bunch of ballots up. But the biggest point of all is obviously the leadership that Governor DeSantis has tried to implement and I think has successfully implemented for by far the most part over the past few years here, which is he has painted a very positive, affirmative, optimistic vision of conservative governance. As we've discussed on the show, he is he has been unafraid to potentially wield power. So, for example, he has used government power to kind of outlaw private sector vaccine mandates when it comes to employment. We discussed ad infinitum on this program, the uh, the battle that he had with the Walt Disney Company earlier this year. He has the Stop Woke Act as far as woke capital is concerned. He's been all over the critical race theory fight in, in the classrooms. He has tried to kind of over, he has successfully overridden the counties as far as kind of mass mandates are concerned for children in schools. He's been all over the issues and he has fundamentally been able to successfully paint Florida as a bastion for sanity amidst a very, very turbulent sea of insanity that all too often is the status quo across the rest of the country here. And, you know, I'm not going to touch on the 2024 stuff right now. We'll kind of, I'm sure we'll get to that in many, many future podcasts now. For now, I'd just like to focus on the results that Florida has had for the past few years here. It's very weird to speak of Florida as a red state, but that is clearly what it is right now. Um, and I guess I'll just open it up to the rest of you guys. I mean, I, I mean, do you think that the Florida model, I guess it's kind of the key question I would be keen for your thoughts on, do you think that the Florida model is translatable for the rest of the country? Or are some of us who are here and drinking the Kool-Aid a little too glib in thinking that it is so easily translatable? I think the Florida model is translatable. I think the Georgia model is translatable. I think the Doug Ducey model is translatable. I think uh, you, you can sort of go down the line and whether or not you like those particular people, these are Republicans that are putting up bigger numbers than some of the other people um, who are running. And I don't think that's necessarily a Trump issue. I don't think it falls along MAGA lines. I think it falls along um, just sort of the way that you are willing to, to deal with uh, your messaging. Like uh, Ron DeSantis ran on I am getting stuff done and here's what I will continue to do. Um, and if you look, for instance, at Brian Kemp, who a lot of people I know are, he's, he's rightfully controversial, um, but the guy passed that voter law that people turned out to really like. And I, I think that works with voters. I don't think, I think independent voters are swayed by incumbents who are doing real work and are doing substance. And by the way, they don't even have to always agree hundred percent with it. Um, if you look at, you know, certain laws that Ron DeSantis has passed, I'm sure there's a chunk of independent voters who went and came out for him that don't agree with with everything he's done. Um, but I think if you're you're actually doing things and uh, rather than sort of being very, very online and uh, you know, that kind of thing, um, it, it works. And I like Blake Masters. Um, I do think some of the postmortems on the Masters candidacy have been sort of funny that Blake Masters like on Valentine's Day was tweeting about like just culture war stuff that was very much aimed at an online audience. Um, again, like I don't necessarily know if that was right or wrong, but I do think he doesn't have the advantage of incumbency. You, you kind of have to be all about business um, and the culture war is serious business. Uh, and I think we're learning that Ron DeSantis can get away with it because as an incumbent, he did a lot of serious stuff and treated the issue really seriously and, and went to work and did things. Um, and 
I mean, I don't know that I necessarily heard that from others uh, at the same level that it needed to be. There's a million other reasons why Dr. Oz lost. There's a million reasons why Carrie Lake, et cetera, uh, fell short. But um, I do think the Florida model where you have a, a good uh, bellwether, a good sort of uh, melting pot representation of the American people, um, I, I think that is very, very powerful. The only other thing I'll say is I do think, you know, folks have to be careful not to orchestrate from the top down in the way we saw in 2015 and 2016 um, and, and to sort of, you know, listen to actual voters and, and sort of take everything, their preferences into account and and not be elitist or angry towards towards Trump voters, um, but sort of humbled by their experiences and, and what's happened and their perspectives. Um, but I do think it's translatable. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree a lot with almost everything that Emily said. Um, I think embedded in the culture wars uh, for a lot of people, especially people who are either apolitical or more independent than the types of folks that you know we're constantly talking to, is a concern in the drop of functionality and competence that goes along uh, with jettisoning, jet, jettisoning, whatever, <laughs> with getting rid of the meritocracy. Um, I think there's there's a uh, sort of ideological opposition to some of the, the cultural leftism elements of the culture wars, uh, but there's also a competency objection, and that is when when systems and institutions go woke, they become essentially incompetent and useless because they're selecting on ideology and not merit. Um, I think these are two kind of distinct concerns with the culture wars. Um, and I think that the can some of the candidates Emily listed, I would add Youngkin to that list, right? Um, they are running on a platform of both. They're, they're making an argument against sort of uh, the left and cultural issues, a very strong one, but they're pairing it with competency. And I would actually even go back to, um, despite all sort of the messiness within the White House and the court intrigue politics of the Trump White House, um, I, before coronavirus hit, right, in, in uh, 2019, the conventional wisdom is Trump is going to cruise to re-election. Why? Because things were basically functioning in the country. So his his sort of, uh, you know, Twitter act or his, his quote unquote chaos didn't matter because the country wasn't in chaos. Um, so I think I think the buzzword instead of being chaos should be competency, um, and and especially within the culture wars, which I continue to insist are the the big tent. I think they are issues um, issues like crime, issues like uh, what's being taught in schools, all the issues that we constantly talk about um, as culture war issues. Those are big tent issues. Those are issues we can reach out to the middle on, but it has to be paired with. Uh, something that addresses their competency concerns, because a lot of people are concerned about this ideology because it ruins the competency of institutions and of, of states and functioning life, not because they have sort of this abstract ideological objection to it. You know what, I'm happy to reserve my time to, for parting thoughts to talk a little bit about the one optimistic note of Florida if we want to go on to the next segment. Uh, well, in that case, uh, I'll take the wheel here. Um, so last week I brought up uh, the huge margin that was being run up among essentially unmarried women for the Democratic Party in this midterm. And, and it's pretty stark, I'll repeat it here. So married men broke Republican by 20 points in this midterm. Married women broke Republican by 14 points. Unmarried men broke Republican by seven points, but unmarried women broke Democrat by 37 points. And that was enough to, to fix the election, right? So, um, it's pretty clear to me that we we need to start thinking of this 
as a political problem um, instead of just sort of mocking it, um, which I mean, I'm guilty of as well. Uh, I, I think that it's, um, it's an easy, it's an easy mocking topic for the right. But we have to consider that these women actually they're voting in large numbers, they are flipping elections, they are really um, a powerful force, both in our politics and in our, like in our economy and our economic circumstances. Um, so I think we need we need a real plan. And it could be one of three things, right? You run up your vote total with everyone else, which means we sort of double down and try to get um, married couples to come out to vote um, and single men uh, to come out to vote. And we just completely jettison this demographic. Or we're going to have to figure out a messaging campaign to apply the more um, soft edges of that demographic back into the Republican Party. I don't really know, um, you know, which which one of those would be the appropriate course, but we're not even talking about it that way. But we need to start thinking about this demographically. And furthermore, um, just to one more kind of thought on this topic before I kick it out to everybody else, the the, the James Burnham thesis has turned out to be remarkably sexed, right? So. Um, the rise of the managerial class, the rise of, of uh, sort of the economic and political power of a particular type of, of uh, sort of worker. Let's let's uh, you know generalize. Let's use the archetype of the HR worker, right? Um, but the, but there are a lot of these jobs, um, and they are credentialed. They are uh, politically organized, and we have a system that that really rewards this managerial class. Well, when we're talking about it in, in class terms, we're forgetting to talk about it in gender terms because that's actually what it is. It's, it's a sexed profession. There are a lot of women in these positions and many of them um, are single and are voting in this particular way and fit into this demographic. So I think we have to think about when we're talking about some of these structural changes, um, it might be very, very difficult for us to sell some of our, our structural, uh, let's say curtailment of the power of the managerial class um, single women are rightly going to vote in their interest against that. And that's, I'm not saying we need to capitulate to that, but it is, it is a dynamic that we need to, to actually consider and think about in, in a strategic way going forward. So, um, you know, I, I kick it out to, to the rest of you all. Uh, how do you think we should deal with this problem? Um, do you think we should be essentially doubling down and trying to, in that case, trying to turn out the vote of everybody else? Um, and and to to really sort of become the party, for example, the, the party of parents, um, that that's something that was kicked around during young, Youngkin's election. Or um, do we need to find a way to appeal to single women um, who are increasingly actually the massive base of the Democratic Party? So uh, it, it, it's really a good question, honestly. Um, I wish I had a great answer to it. I mean, I, along with kind of the election issue, along with the massive fundraising discrepancy and all these various key races, this is one of the biggest, biggest, most fundamental questions that I think Republicans are going to have to ask. I mean, and as I'm really happy you laid it out the way you did there and kind of that two by two kind of unmarried, unmarried men, women quadrant style, because it's just jarring. I mean, it is simply jarring the extent to which unmarried women in particular are just blocking in droves to the Democrats. So I guess I will say two things here. So one is, I guess the short answer to your question, and that's if I had to give a quick yes or no answer as to kind of should Republicans kind of double down on being kind of the, the party of parents and families. I think the short answer to that question is actually is yes. I mean, I think that I think that, that is a politically shrewd thing to do. It is, it is it has paid dividends in many states. I think it is at least partially attributable 
to the success of, of, of DeSantis and kind of the Florida model, including many local school board election races, I might add, actually in the state in, in the state of Florida that have kind of gone to pro-parental rights, right? Um, you know, our, our, our friend Max Ian at AEI is, is big on this kind of rhetoric, and I think it has it has paid political dividends. But at the same time, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be, and there's no need to be, you know, alienating unmarried women to the at the at the extent or at the rate at which Republicans are clearly doing so. So I guess two quick thoughts on that. You know, look, I, I, I mean, I am a staunch pro-lifer. I write and speak on this issue all the time. I, I've been probably one of the leading proponents of the idea that, that the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, actually includes protection for unborn children nationally and that abortion is therefore effectively unconstitutional at a national level. It, it, at this point, I think it is fairly obvious that the median voter and the culture is simply not reconcilable with that principle. So therefore, for for reasons of prudence, if if no other, we probably need to now focus more at the state level on more kind of incremental legislation. It probably is time to not have these kind of sweeping pro-life initiatives, these constitutional amendments on the various state constitutional amendments. We've seen the defeats in states like Kansas and Kentucky. So I think we need to, at least for the time being, until we get our house in order a little bit more on the pro-life side, take the Dobbs victory focus on kind of incremental legislation at the state level, focus more on kind of heartbeat laws, something that's kind of viscerally, symbolically, biologically powerful is speaking about heartbeats. That strikes me as a as a good example there, fetal pain, things of that nature, right? As opposed to kind of trying to kind of enact tomorrow kind of sweeping bans. So it is, it is a time for humility for pro-lifers on that issue. And I guess the only final thing I'll add is that Family policy has been kind of a, re a recurring talking point, an area of discussion on this particular podcast. I think the time has never been more ripe, frankly, for, re for Republicans to kind of get on board with some sort of slightly more populist, for lack of a better term, uh, approach to family policy without kind of pinpointing a, a specific kind of le legislation, whether it's on the Josh Hawley model or the Orrin Cass model, Mitt Romney. A lot of folks have proposed good things along these lines here. But I think the time has never been better for Republicans to double down on that particular approach to supporting families and uh, single parents as well. So so I'll be brief here. Um, I don't necessarily have a dog in the fight in terms of tactically whether it pays more to try to craft some kind of message that in theory is going to make a dent in a D plus 37 population versus really trying to ring out as much of potential family voters or other demographics that we might bring out, you know, what net net is going to win more voters in the most important places at numbers that we need. I'm not sure yet that we have the data to make an assessment there. Also, and obviously there's huge overlap here, but the other breakdown that's very clear is that every age cohort, <clears throat> with the exception of 18 to 29, and then to some extent, 30 to 44, was, which is only a D plus two, I think, in this race. But 18 to 29, obviously, overwhelmingly Democrat. I think it was maybe greater than a 60-40 split in the numbers that we've seen so far. So the young and within that cohort, likely a decent percentage of unmarried women is the Democrat coalition today. And in fact, it's clear that they made a conscious decision, I think, to target this demographic. When you go back to, I'm sure you all remember, the life of Julia, under Barack Obama. And then I think Joe Biden updated that to the life of Linda now to support uh, one of the major policy pushes under this administration. They've made a clear and concerted effort to tailor policies to a certain population. Uh, obviously, as Inez noted, there are structural reasons why 
it appears to be in their benefit to vote Democrat. And then obviously, as Josh notes, you have the single issue voter issue here, which is that abortion is going to be, it would seem a make or break issue, thanks to propaganda dominated by the left, I think, on this issue that is pushing them towards Democrats, no matter what, no matter what Republican essentially is on the ballot. So I think this points to obviously a broader problem of we lose certain percentages of people by very dint of the fact that the younger they are, the closer they are to being in institutions where they're constantly indoctrinated by the left, then there are the structural grounds. And so there's a question of, is a population lost essentially until they matriculate and get older, wiser, and actually have to deal with the consequences of their decisions? So do you say a population is lost or do you say, maybe we try to make small incremental gains there and set up future wins, but we really focus on populations that are more likely to vote at a higher propensity for us, I think is an open question, but it points to obviously the baked in problems that we face in the ideological war here. I think back to that New Yorker cover in the middle of the pandemic that I talk about all the time of the young woman in front of her laptop on a Zoom, sort of as I am now in an apartment in an, in an urban area with um, you know trash all over the floor, takeout containers. Um, she's drinking, and I think you know that's really starting to become um, a, a wide on a wide scale the experiment the experience of young women and you can understand then why the, the life of Julia is genuinely attracting uh, people to the Democratic Party. Um, you can understand all kinds of different things, but I would say Republicans, conservatives in particular have to approach this conversation boldly um, but also with compassion right so the the opposite of the 2012 autopsy which said uh you know become the pale pastel not the bold colors that ronald reagan talked about the bold color is compassionate um you know showing a better path forward is compassionate um i don't want to say republicans should become the party of jordan peterson but i think there's logic to the idea of people are looking for moral clarity women are looking for moral clarity and um you know a a campaign that taps into that um and and doesn't make people feel badly for life choices that are, are rooted in the the postmodern conditioning that has pushed them into misery i mean that people want answers and they want to understand why this is happening to them um and you know that's not to say we should have a bunch of podcast hosts running for for office uh but it is to say that a lot of these issues can be talked about in ways that are helpful like what Oren has at american compass the pipeline sort of diverting the pipeline from higher education um to something else like uh, incentivizing motherhood incentivizing marriage um and talking about why we're doing that so with that i'll transition to the next person on the on the rundown here um i'll, I'll just wrap this topic up by saying uh the problem with sort of the analysis that they'll get older and they'll transition out of this category is that, is that they aren't. Um, so uh, no one has to grow up if they don't do the things that force them to grow up, like marrying and having a family. Um, if you look at the sort of birth cohorts by decade, uh, if you were born in the 1940s, 50s, or even into the born in the 1960s, you have above 80% of people ultimately um, getting up, above 80% of women ultimately uh, ever married, right? So yes, you have some divorces in there and so on. We have lots of other problems, but like, even if you're born in the 1970s, just barely above, um, below 80% at some point were married. You, you go to essentially millennials and Gen Z and that, that 
figure right now is about 60% as the, at the same age, right? At the same age in, in your um, mid, mid to late thirties. Okay. So um, this is just comparing at the same age. It's not like, obviously the, the older people get, the more likely they are to get married, but, or have been married, but it, this demographic is growing and it's not going to stop growing. Um, so I, I think that's just something we have to take into account. In any case, uh, let's, let's talk about the GOP leadership race. I'm going to kick it back over to Emily for that. This is really the hottest topic in D.C. right now, especially on the right, of course, is what happens to Mitch McConnell when you have uh, a lot of growing sort of irritation. People are people are irked by the McConnell approach to the 2022 midterms. And I think in some respects, he's a, a convenient scapegoat because he took a lot of missteps and uh, is maybe getting blamed uh, disproportionate to his actual share of the blame, but he definitely deserves some of the blame. Uh, he, was, he was talking badly about candidates in August in the middle of the cycle. He decided intentionally not to run on an agenda uh, with the argument that it only gives Democrats ammunition. And then finally, uh, we know that he diverted money from Blake Masters to uh, different areas of the country, for instance, to supporting Lisa Murkowski, I think is the most egregious example of this. Um, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, who, by the way, was running against the Republican. <laughs> Uh, for the most part, uh, is in a, the closest race, was in the closest race with a, a fellow Republican. So all of that uh, has led to the last week where you have Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, um, all kinds of folks, uh, Cynthia Lummis, um, people, senators, Ted Cruz across the spectrum really coming out to say, um, you know, this is the leadership race on the Senate side is not all sudden done. It shouldn't be wrapped up um, before Georgia, although Tom Cotton has said uh, he, he thinks everyone should just sort of get behind Mitch McConnell early so that we can move into Georgia from his perspective. His, his conference can move into Georgia uh, with everything sort of settled. Um, but Mitch McConnell is, is really, it seems like the dam is breaking. It seemed like that earlier in the year as he sort of uh, went to the mat with Rick Scott, who did, I think, actually end up giving Democrats ammunition, um, talking about uh, Medicare and Social Security, which I understand. But from McConnell's perspective, you know, that's why you have to have a smart agenda, blah, blah, blah. But McConnell's lack of leadership left that vacuum wide open um, for, for somebody else to step in uh, because McConnell just refused to do it. Now, Kevin McCarthy, there's some rumblings that the Freedom Caucus might mount a serious challenge. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is very friendly with Kevin McCarthy, has sort of poured cold water on that idea. I do think they're going to exert a lot of pressure on uh, McCarthy and on the caucus as a whole, um, on the conference as a whole before uh, the, the elections actually happen. I think they're going to squeeze some concessions out of Kevin McCarthy, but there's really, you know, Jim Jordan supports McCarthy. There's really nobody that can step into that vacuum. Um, and this is very consequential, right? Because uh, Republicans and, and Mitch McConnell is not popular with Republican voters. If you look at polling, um, I saw one today that had him at like popular with 20% of Republican voters. I mean, it's just pretty stunning. Um, and there are some real questions about his leadership, not going to the, not going to the mat for issues that his voters really care about, um, but willing to block on, on judges and do all that stuff, willing to, you know, fight for tax cuts and all that stuff, um, but not necessarily for issues voters care about. So I'll toss it open to the group. I, I think Mitch McConnell is, is much more vulnerable than Kevin McCarthy. Um, how does this shake out? And if he is vulnerable, who can step into his shoes? Sorry, 
So the latter most question is, I think, the crucial one. So after a midterm election like this, heads need to roll. I mean, people need to be held accountable. Look, the fundraising numbers, if nothing else, what is a political party without a fundraising vehicle? I mean, J.D. Vance had, I thought, a very thoughtful and uh, nuanced piece that he published at TAC, American Conservative, on Monday. The title of this piece was Don't Blame Trump, but if you dig down a little deeper, he's making a much more kind of nuanced point where he was basically saying that the lack of funding, the lack of money was probably the number one reason why Republicans lost many other races that, that, that they should have won based on the polling that were otherwise very winnable and in, in a first presidential term, midterm year backlash and so forth there. And Act Blue, which is the Democratic Party's kind of small donor online donation agglomeration tool, is at this point orders of magnitude more effective than WinRed, which is the GOP's equivalent of that. That's a big freaking problem. And, you know, I mean, from my perspective, again, what I was saying on my Newsweek podcast that I just finished recording before we clicked record on on this one, is that if I had my druthers, ideally, Ronald McDaniel, Mitch McConnell, Ken McCarthy, they would all go. I mean, this is a big, big failure. And I think that failure is partially attributable to the fact that Republicans nationally did not do as some Republicans like DeSantis and Kim Reynolds and some others did and actually paint an affirmative vision and affirmative agenda. You know, Rick Scott was the chair of the NRSC. You know, he had something resembling an agenda. We discussed on this show a little bit. The Senate Republicans chose not really to run on that. But, uh, you know, Rick Scott did not exactly do a good job either as far as as far as his role as head of the NRSC this year. So I guess I kind of come back to if we're going to try to oust Mitch McConnell in particular, and it's really a shame that, you know, Mitch McConnell's best friend, Rachel Bovard, is not here on this podcast to kind of give her own perspective on that, um, as she probably works behind the scenes to try to do precisely that, actually. Um, but I, 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 I guess I struggle with coming up with who the logical replacement of Mitch McConnell would be. I mean, like, are we really then enthused at the idea of John Thune of South Dakota coming in to replace Mitch McConnell? I'm not particularly optimistic about that. I mean, are we going to get like a Tom Connor or a Ted Cruz majority leader? I mean, like, no, it's just not going to happen. So I don't know. I mean, maybe at this point until we figure out who would be a viable challenger, the devil we know is what we have to come back to. But in, in an ideal situation here, in an ideal situation after a devastating midterm like this, McDaniel, McConnell, and McCarthy would all go. It would be really nice, obviously, if someone like an Andy Biggs, um, who was making kind of a spirited challenge, you know, a, a speaker Andy Biggs, whatever, that definitely excites me, right? But you know, we've all seen how this song and dance works, and it's hard to get too excited about the possibility that it might actually happen in practice. Well, let me just say we're recording this Tuesday, so I think it's very clear that President Trump's announcement tonight will be that he is throwing his hat in the ring for Speaker of the House. So we'll see how that how that plays out. Um, all joking aside, I, I will say that in some respects, a small, very small, razor thin majority in the House may prove better for conservatives than had there been a resounding victory in the house because it is going to empower the house freedom caucus and adjacent forces likely to exert significantly more sway uh over the speaker and let's also note there's a huge race huge competition right now which is a proxy i think for a lot of other battles for whip in the house uh when it comes to jim banks versus tom emmer there so something to look out for A, a few observations on the senate side of things uh the explicit push of Mitch McConnell going into the 2022 midterms was to not put forth an affirmative agenda. That's number one. Number two, when it comes to, you know, judges, and that is usually the primary place where 
McConnell wins plaudits even from his otherwise critics. Let's note, this is a Pew article from August, 2022. Headline, Biden has appointed more federal judges than any president since JFK at this point in his tenure. So he has not served as a breaking mechanism on Democrat judges being appointed that we're going to be plagued with now for decades to come. There's also an impression, and I think, and we can look at the data points and we, from this election and past ones, by the way, past cycles, where the hand-chosen establishment senators have failed, even going back, you know, looking at 2020 in Georgia, there, I think there's an impression out there that McConnell would rather lose with rhino candidates than win with populists, nationalists, MAGA forces, whatever you want to call them, conservatives, broadly. And of course, the establishment generally has sought to kill conservative candidates when it's come, when they've been out there, uh, even very strong conservative candidates. So putting all that into consideration, I think there's a question, a practical question of, is it a fait accompli that Mitch McConnell does again retain his position, I guess, as minority leader or not? It is telling certainly that you've had everyone uh, as noted here from even like a Lindsey Graham talking about maybe we should hold the brakes on these contests and, and wait a bit uh, through more conservative members of the Senate Republican caucus. I think it's very clear that Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, and Rick Scott, to varying degrees, probably think they ought to be the ones to command the party in the Senate based upon some of the comments that they've made. But practically, if it is a fait accompli, then there's a question of what is the what do people think they can extract by making it tough for Mitch McConnell to retain his position in this case as a minority leader? And you know, I think Rachel would be probably the the best one to chime in on that. Maybe in a future episode, she will. What is to be gained by seeking to throw dirt in the gears here? Uh, even though I, in my view, it's certainly more than merited. To, Pushing off the race past December 6th is that minimum what should transpire, because as Josh noted, there were massive failures in what should have been a red wave, and heads absolutely need to roll for it. But then I think the question is, what do you hope to gain? What can be gained to the extent McConnell is blocked? And it hasn't been yet made clear to me uh, what the ultimate aims are, whereas in the House, it's clear that there are things that conservatives might be able to or at least seek to extract, given the makeup there. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Ben in that I, I want to see more what can be gained by ousting McConnell, even though my initial instinct is definitely to be very happy about the potential of ousting McConnell. Um, I think he has been a critical roadblock for getting um, a lot of important conservative policy. He doesn't really care, as Rachel always says, and Rachel would be the best to comment on this, um, always says, you know, he views power as a trophy to be polished on a shelf, not to be used for the purposes uh, that his constituents elected him to. Uh, and I, I think that's just fundamentally. So I'm happy to see, I would be happy to see him go. It's not clear to me how much better right now Rick Scott is. Now, maybe, maybe he can make that pitch. Maybe he can convince me and other conservatives, not that I matter, um, that he's really going to be substantially more conservative, that he's going to wield power uh, on behalf of conservative voters and the conservative base. Um, I'm not convinced of that yet, but that just speaks to the need to delay uh, delay these these uh, votes until um, perhaps we can have a champion or until Rick Scott uh, actually puts himself forward as a um, exciting alternative to, to McConnell instead of just the not McConnell. I think we saw how, how well the not that guy worked to this election. I think it sort of works similarly within the within the Republican Party leadership. You can't your, your qualifications can't be that you're just not someone else or something else. So um, those are my thoughts on that. And with that, let's uh, let's go for final thoughts.
Well, this is a, an existential question for Republicans. If you don't have anybody to replace Mitch McConnell, and I think it's it's it, it, that's very telling uh, because there's a lot of truth to it. Like Rick Scott, I don't think is in a position to do it. Um, and yet Rick, Rick Scott's the only one who stepped into that kind of vacuum. Um, and to Josh's point, I think it's because a lot of Republican senators that are on the right page when it comes to McConnell's leadership, let's say Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, um, understood that it was really an option of like the the beast you know, as Josh put it, I think. And I mean, it seems to me that we're in the middle of a, a transition period that's going to be really painful to Republicans. Um, and I feel like there's just got to be an, a kind of an acceptance of the fact that at least, you know, but mitigate the amount of time that it takes, right? Is it two years of pain? Is it four years of pain? Is it 10 years of pain? Um, but Republicans, it's, it's personnel is policy, right? And so some of this is going to take time. You need to elect new benches and to elect new benches, um, that, that means, you know, coming up with ways to, to work with what already exists and uh, field candidates that are going to have good conversations and, and uh, understand voters and all of that stuff. So maybe uh, one giant step, one leap can happen in that transition and there's a way to install Ted Cruz as majority leader. It seems highly, highly, highly unlikely, um, but maybe it's also just extracting concessions from from Mitch McConnell uh, that lead to, you know, ensuring that the next person in the chain is not Thune, ensuring the next person in the chain is not Cornyn um, and, and sort of taking care of that. You know, not all of this stuff can can happen immediately. I think you see that with the results from last Tuesday where J.D. Vance gets in and Blake Masters doesn't, um, where DeSantis does extremely well and Carrie Lake is in a tight race. Um, so Dr. Oz, you know, Adam Laxalt don't want to really come down on a, a clear point on abortion, don't really want to talk about it, don't really want to come in and uh, say, you know, here's what's happening on the Democrat side. Um, you know, if you if you just sort of ignore those questions, um, I think that's a, a lesson. And it can be one of the lessons that shapes the Republican Party into something better. But in the broader context, our society is going through an extremely painful transition right now. And what's happening to Republicans and Dem Democrats is sort of a symptom of that. And um, you know, Republicans are best positioned to have an answer because Republicans are still the, the party that most reflects voters of uh, faith. Um, and we saw that clearly in Dearborn over the last month or so. So, uh, you know, it's a matter of, of taking care of a lot of sort of deep fundamental uh, root problems, as Kamala Harris would say, and that's not going to be easier or come quickly. Yeah, I, I have a kind of off the wall uh final thought here um and that's that abbott governor abbott has come out and announced a series of new border protection measures in texas um he's relying on the invasion clauses of the u.s constitution and of the texas constitution to justify it i, I don't know about the sort of the legal merits of the invasion clause argument but it, it did make, get me thinking about the fact that um a texas unfortunately it seems like arizona is going to be off the table um in this but a, a a another border state like texas um can can actually uh take another run at the arizona against U united states question uh, this is a case that was decided back in 2012 uh, that took border security essentially and, and immigration enforcement out of the hands of the states um and, and the question was essentially, what can states do if the federal government isn't enforcing its own laws? Can they uh, pass parallel laws? Can they enforce federal law? Can state 
uh, police, for example, enforce federal law. Now, you had three concurrences in part, dissents in part from Alito, Thomas, and Scalia in that case. Um, it occurs to me that this could be actually a, an earthquake um, if that case was reconsidered, if we get reasoning more alongside, uh, more similar to the reasoning of the conservative part of the court, uh, in that it essentially says, you know, states are free uh, to enforce federal law. There's no conflict between states enforcing what's on the books in federal law just because federal agencies don't want them to do it. That's not a legitimate um, conflict and it's not a legitimate enforcement of, of federal plenary power. That would be huge, not just for the, the border issue itself, although of course it would be, but as, as a political issue um, for the Republican Party to run on in border states, uh, because I think it's one of those issues that is very popular, particularly in border states, but has a damper on it, just like the abortion issue did for many, many years, because there was very limited number of things that the state government could actually do about the border. Um, so that, that opens up that whole possibility. I just wanted to throw that out there for consideration. Perhaps um, we'll see Texas or some other border states taking another another shot at it, actually enforcing U.S. immigration law as the federal government is supposed to do. So I'll return just briefly to uh, Florida, which, of course, Republicans achieved a resounding victory in and of themselves, and then obviously relative to what happened nationally, which is clearly a testament to the leadership of Governor DeSantis and others within the state. And a couple observations on that. The first one is, as Josh noted, Governor DeSantis in 2018 won by such a small margin, it was on a knife's edge. And then he did not govern like he just won on a small margin. He governed boldly, but with policies that I think in many cases, at least as articulated and as argued, really were 80-20 policies that allowed him to govern as a conservative in a state that was not a conservative state at that time, but which became a sanctuary state for freedom and against wokeism. And I, again, I think Republicans nationwide may have suffered as a consequence of that because it was a magnet for conservatives. So there's a question of, if other governors governed as DeSantis did, that is both stylistically and substantively as he did, would there be similar resounding victories for Republicans or would the Republicans flee all the blue states and go to those states? And then we might actually have a worse national picture, I think is one question worth asking. But I think my main observation from Florida is that Governor DeSantis has shown when you obtain power, here's what you do with it to consolidate those gains and grow those gains. I think that is the major national takeaway from him. We could talk about the fact that incumbents and particularly Republican incumbent governors did really well everywhere. One of the things from my perspective, potentially a sobering question, depending on how you respond to it, and I raised this last episode was, you know, we see in Ohio, for example, now a firmly red state, I guess, the DeWine versus J.D. Vance delta of something like 17 points in that case, obviously both Republicans who won. Is the Are Republicans more DeWine or DeSantis? And as a country, are we more DeWine, DeSantis? And if we're more one way than the other way, how do we shift it more towards the DeSantis model than the DeWine model? I think that's a question that has to be answered probably over the next two years. But I think Governor DeSantis has shown the best mix of conservative agenda with a style that wins and leads to massive substantive gains that clearly redounded up and down the ticket in Florida and served as a magnet for people across the country. 
So I look, this has been a pretty depressing and frustrating week or so. I, th I think a week later, many of us are still trying to kind of piece together what exactly went wrong. The, the most amazing thing that I keep on coming back to is that Republicans actually won the national popular vote by four and a half points. They literally won the national popular vote by by four and a half points. And it just simply did not translate. By the way, where are all of the various kind of think pieces talking about the fact that the party that won the popular vote did not translate into the governing majorities and the death of democracy and all that stuff? I mean, it's almost as if it was all BS all along, right? I guess the final point that I just want to emphasize, which we've kind of alluded to at numerous points in this podcast already, is that a lot of the stuff we talk about on this show, all the various other shows and writings that the four of us do, about kind of uh, national conservatism versus right liberalism, classical liberalism, policy, political philosophy, all of that. None of that actually really matters <laughs> in practice if the vehicle for implementing any of this does not learn how to actually engage in modern politics and the actual modern electioneering processes and kind of the, the most basic rudimentary bread and butter tools of fundraising, of being able to get enough money, of getting get out the vote operations, of being willing and able and eager to actually use all the available means when it comes to kind of the current paradigm, no matter, no matter how flawed that paradigm is of, of mass absentee balloting, early voting, ballot harvesting, all of this stuff. So I, I, I think until, until then, uh, almost all of this is somewhat premature. And, you know, that's why I, I, I've tried thus far to mostly issue the 2024 stuff, Trump, DeSantis, all that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But really, I mean, at this point, given the state of the Republican Party, given the state of the RNC, given this, given the state of the various state party apparatuses and our massive fundraising discrepancy, really, does any of that matter? I mean, if we fail to actually learn and implement any of these lessons that we have now seen in back-to-back -back elections caught with our pants totally down in 2020 and 2022, will any Republican nominee actually be able to win in 2024? I mean, you know, that probably applies doubly for Donald Trump, obviously, given the uh, various stuff that I'm not going to get into that we've, we can talk about on future podcast episodes. But it's really, 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 really important that the RNC and Republicans in general go back to 101, go back to how to engage in politics 101. And I sincerely, sincerely hope that there is going to be a profound top to bottom rethink as to how the party goes about conducting its elections, because unless and until then, none of this is particularly relevant. And, you know, as a final last word, I see Inez has put it in our little group chat. She's totally right to do so, that she doesn't want to hear any more about the Electoral College. And all I can say to that, Inez, is amen. Yeah, especially since Florida is now a red state and, and Florida and Ohio, the two quintessential swing states of the 2000s um, are now deep red and and uh, Arizona is a swing state going blue. Um, obviously, a lot of the Democrats arguments against the Electoral College, not so valid anymore. Um, but with that, uh, I'd like to, to sign off here uh, on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman. See you at the next NatCon Squad.